It's good to see you all. Um, some of you are back for week two of our new series called Theology Matters. Some of you might be here for the first time and weren't here last week. Either way, um, delighted to have you all um, that you've braved the Atlanta traffic, uh, got out of work or fault whatever other schedule you had to make it here. Uh, that's a special thing and I'm grateful and I'm glad. My name is Ryan Bonfilio. I'm a minister here at First Presbyterian Church and I do this sort of thing. I do Christian ed, but particularly courses and content um, and talks that hopefully make this church not only a place that's hospitable and, and encouraging as you grow in your faith and in your discipleship, but we also hope that uh, through these sorts of events, First Presbyterian Church becomes in a center for church-based theological education both locally and denominationally. So we are excited for this sort of opportunity to, for a little bit, uh, for at least for a month here, to play seminary together, to have a chance to delve a little bit deeper into the content of our faith, of scripture and theology, um, in a way, though, that I hope is still accessible, engaging, and relevant to where you are in your life in faith. Um, I have a few announcements to make before I do the introduction to the introduction that will lead into the introduction of the second week of our class. Uh, but first, let us pray. God of wisdom, God of truth, God of love, God of grace, we are grateful to be gathered. It is good to be a community together. You've given us minds to think, hearts to believe. May we come together and know you better, experience you more, and live in a way that honors you and all that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, first, just a couple quick announcements. Um, we have name tags made, I think, for almost everyone who was here last week. There are some exceptions, and that's just because I did not complete my list. So if you might look on the outside uh, table for name tags, there's also blank name tags that you might fill one uh, out for yourself. But to help us have better name tags and better record of your attendance, I'm going to pass around a little sign-up sheet. And here's how it works. Your names are on here if you were here last week. Um, just put an X next to October 14th. I don't know how it's October 14th already, but it is. Put an X next to October 14th. If, you're, if you were not here or if for some reason your name did not make it onto this list, I apologize. If you could just write your name in, there's some blank spaces here, or turn a page over and, um, and do that, that would be great. So I'm going to send that around. There is uh, dessert from Highland Bakery, so I hope you will enjoy that. There is coffee from Starbucks. Uh, the one little box seems injured, so be careful if you're getting the regular. It might spill, but the decaf is fine. At any point, please get up, uh, refill your cups, and refill your plates. Uh, there's plenty to eat. Um, I should also say, did, does anyone have any questions or problems with parking? I should have named this last week. Are, are you all parked in a legal place? You know where you are and how to get out of there free of charge? If you are in this lot, the lot over here, you can get your ticket stamped, and that will get you out free of charge. If you're over in the Laz lot, which is the lot on the other side of Peachtree, I have little tickets for you that you put in the machine, and it takes it, and you don't have to pay. So if you're in that situation, uh, come see me, and I'll give you a yellow ticket. And if you're behind the church, no problem. Um, you're good to go for there. Um, all right. With all of those announcements being said, Let's start again, as I said before, the review to the introduction that will eventually get us to the introduction of this session. Here's a quick primer on where we've been on the course. So if you were either here last week and forgot or weren't here last week, this is what you missed. We are starting a course, or the starting point for our course, let me put it that way, is a bumper sticker. Now, that's not a very academic thing to start a course with a bumper sticker, but that's what we're going to do. We're starting with a bumper sticker I've really seen down here in Georgia and other places in the south and the north that says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And, um, and really we're talking about the, the thought process and mentality behind the bumper sticker, not the actual bumper sticker. It, in my opinion, is a well-meaning, faithful attempt to somehow articulate one's belief in the Bible, one's commitment to the Bible, one's thought that the Bible matters in Christianity, matters in culture, matters to who we are as a people of faith, for that, I love the bumper sticker, but as a doctrine of scripture, or as a mini manual for how to interpret the Bible, it really falls quite flat in many ways. In my experience, and perhaps in yours, it's not always clear what the Bible is saying 
And even if it is clear what the Bible is saying, it's not often clear how it settles issues that matter to us in our contemporary faith in life. So for these and other reasons, I think we need a more robust, nuanced, and thoughtful statement or statements about what the Bible is and how we might go about interpreting it. Or maybe we just need a bigger car and a bigger bumper sticker. I don't have a car that big, I drive a very small car, so I need a, a different format to express my understanding of what the Bible is and how to interpret it. And so that's what this course is all about. It is a, basically a four-week introduction to biblical interpretation. Uh, and the way we're going to do that is by offering a series of 12 theses that lay out foundational perspectives and best practices about how it is that we can thoughtfully engage scripture today. Uh, broadly speaking, the first two weeks, the first set of theses the from the first two weeks, generally deal with what the Bible is. What sort of book is it? Why does it matter? What, do we, what can we expect from its pages? How do we understand the sort of literature we find in it? The second uh, set of theses, the ones that come on week three and four, will deal more specifically with how do we actually interpret it. So the first two weeks is kind of what is this thing that we call the Bible? And then the second two weeks is how do we best interact with it interpretively. So, that's the review. Here's the review of the introduction. No, that was the, that was the review of the introduction. This is the real review of week one. I'm getting lost in what reviews I'm doing. So week one, we covered two theses, two theses of our 12. Uh, the first was quite simple. Christianity is a religion of the book. And as we saw, this was not a very particularly controversial statement in its own right. Catholics, Protestants, evangelicals of all sorts would affirm this very truth. The problem is, and here's a rub and it's a big one, it's the simple fact that the Bible is less known and less used today in Christian circles than ever before. So if Christianity is a religion of the book, its relationship to the book has changed, in part because we don't use it all that often and we don't know it all that well. Some of the evidence for this, as we talked about last week, is anecdotal. We just have stories, experiences, where knowledge of Bible in, from kids to adults, from evangelicals to Catholics, is not as good as it used to be. And this is not just me being kind of a grump, like, oh, this new generation is bad. It, it, there, really is, it, there really is a declining literacy in terms of the Bible. And there's even surveys that provide some more um, concrete data to suggest that this is in fact the case. We mentioned the Pew Survey of Religious Knowledge from 2010. They did very basic Bible questions to Catholics, Protest mainline Protestants, Evangelicals. And look, there's no way to put it. We did terribly on this. Mainline Protestants, which most of you would consider yourself as my guess, um, got an average score of 56% on the very basic Bible questions. Bible questions that I think you probably learned in third grade or something like that. This is not seminary level content. Catholics and evangelicals did about the same or a little worse. The condition of our Bible knowledge and Bible use is on life support. In fact, I like to talk about, although this will be a talk for another time, I like to use a linguistic analogy. I like to say that the Old Testament is dying. Just like languages in the real world die out, for lack of use, I actually think there's a real chance that the Old Testament, and maybe even the Bible as a whole, could die out in terms of linguistic analogy. That is, if enough people don't speak it, if enough people don't use it, languages die. And I'm afraid of that at some level. And there's, there's a, more to say on that issue. Um, so there's anecdotal evidence, there's uh, survey evidence, but there's also some humorous evidence and I want to add a lighthearted moment to this. Some of you have heard these from me, so if you have, kind of try to fake your laughter, but if you haven't, enjoy. Um, there, there was a survey I've seen, um, things fifth graders say about the Bible. Some of you know this, some of you don't. And I just thought I'd share a couple of these with you. The Egyptians were all drowned in the desert. Afterward, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. What I love about this and the others that you'll see is that they almost got it, right? A couple letters and this would be completely right and yet as is, it's a disaster. <laughs> Moses died before he ever reached Canada. Now this is a factual statement. Moses never reached Canada, not in my Bible, not in the New Testament. Moses, he did not get there. This receives 100% credit on my test. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the Battle of Jericho. <laughs> 
Uh, now, now, this might be true, but it would be a very different sort of battle uh, <laughs> with, of a very different nature than one might expect. Uh, David, now this is also true. David was a Hebrew king skilled at playing the liar. I have no <laughs> objection to this. He absolutely was a liar and was skilled at it, and this also receives full credit in my book. Um, he, David, fought the Finkelsteins, a race of people who lived in biblical times. Um, oh, sorry, there's a little typo there. But he fought the Finkelsteins. Not quite the Finkelsteins. There are other Steens in the Bible, Philistines, but not Finkelsteins. A couple more. Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> the latter, to my knowledge, has not been confirmed archaeologically, uh, though we're still looking into the issue. Uh, Jesus, now it's not just Old Testament, it's not just Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus enunciated the golden rule, which says to do one to others before they do one to you. <laughs> this is like straight out of the New Jersey. I know this kid went from New Jersey. Um, the epistles were the wives of the apostles, little known fact that this is true. Um, and finally, St. Paul cavorted to Christianity. He preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. Now. Uh, depending on how much you laugh at the last part of that statement, I will expose some things. Um, anyway, these are fun. I, I wouldn't build a whole case of lack of literacy on these fifth grader statements. But there is something true, I think, uh, of the falling out of, of importance of the Bible and Christianity. So that's point one. The second point we covered from last week um, is this. Christianity's bookishness, that is, if Christianity is a religion of the book, I'm going to call it its bookishness. Christianity's bookishness means that the Bible must be read and interpreted with care. Now, again, not a stunning statement in any, any means. And uh, in many regards, the rest of this course is going to unpack what we mean by with care. Right? A lot is, is resting on that last little phrase. But we tried to give you just a little bit of a primer to what we meant. And we did it by using uh, a teaching technique that I call four on. I try to reduce complex topics when I teach lectures into four bite-sized or manageable things, hopefully, that are memorable. It's Trinity plus one. Someone asked why four. I said, well, Trinity plus one. It just makes sense. Um, so here, for, uh, for 18 bonus points I am not authorized to give, what are the four on reading the Bible, for those of you who are here? What are the four on? Read it slowly, that's one of them, excellent. Reread it, read it again, that's right. So you read it slowly, turn the pages slowly, but then go back to it. Uh, well, close. Read it in community, that was the same one as read out loud. We said, you, because in the Old Testament world, you didn't read to yourself, you only read out loud. It meant you were always reading in community. So they were one and the same. And then there was one more, the third. Uh, yeah, well, both of them, yes, contemplation and critically. We kind of combine them also into one. So here are the four on reading. Read it slowly, read it again, read it critically, and read it in community. Um, as I thought back on it, I think this last point is the one I want to reiterate and dwell on, reading in community, um, because it, it strikes me as something that we do not do today. We might read slowly, we might read again, we might read critically, but we rarely read in community. And I think I've just had thought, thinking about um, the sorts of disputes that can happen in the church. They're real, they're serious. We'll deal with some of them throughout this course. But I just wonder if it would happen if we read in community. I wonder if it would happen if we read in community with people different than us. I wonder what would happen if we were in community with people different with us and read the Bible together. I don't know. I don't know, but I have hopes that that's the case. There's an image of this, I think, and I want to pause for a moment to reflect on this. In Psalm 133, the first line of Psalm 133, I think, is a little bitty reflection on this last four on. Um, Y'all know Psalm 133, one? It says, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred, that is brothers and sisters, uh, live together in unity. That's nice. That's a nice statement. But I think there's a little bit something more going on here. The word here, live, more literally in Hebrew, is sit. And I think the context of this verse are people gathering at temple for worship. So don't just mean like, yeah, when we're in like our neighborhoods together. I think they mean when we're at temple sitting to worship. That's how good and pleasant it is when we're in unity. Now, I want to take it one step further and say, I think when people came to temple to sit for worship, they sat for a reason. They sat because someone was reading. 
I think this is about reading together in unity. I think people came to sit to hear a word read, and that's what's so good and pleasant, and that's what the unity is. Make sense? So here's what I thought we would do. Just go work with me just a little bit. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Hebrew, and I'm going to teach you a song so that we can literally sing together in unity, though it may or may not be pleasant, depending on the quality of your voices, uh, this uh, song together. And Lisa, you know this song, I think. Do you remember Psalm 133? Hine Matov? No. Okay, I'm going to need you to pull it up. I think we did it last year. I don't remember. So here's, the, here's what the Hebrew sounds like. I've transliterated the Hebrew, not translated, but just giving you the sounds in English. We're going to learn this, and then we're going to sing it together. All right? And we're going to do this like uh, every week, actually. Um, so it's Hine Matov Uma Nayim. Shevet Achim, that K-H is that kind of like spitty sound in the back of your throat. Achim, don't spit in your neighbor's hair. Achim Gayahad, that's the, what the Hebrew sounds like. And so we're going to sing those Hebrew lines in a song. Sound good? All right, it goes like this. Now you're going to have to put up with my singing until you learn it. So there's incentive for you to learn it as quick as possible. Then you get to hear me less and less. And by the way, I have a philosophy about bad singing. The worse singing you have, the louder you should sing. That's the best way to compensate for a, a loud voice, is just bring up the volume. So I will sing loudly. It goes something like this. Hine matov umanayim Hine matov manayim Shevet achim gayahad Hine matov manayim Shevet achim gayahad Hine matov umanayim Hine matov manayim Shevet Ahim Gayahad. Not bad, not bad. Let's take it from the top because here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this as a way of singing and reading together in unity, literally living out that last of the four on, okay? And next week we're going to do it again, but we're going to do it in a round. This is a great song to do in a round. But, but not this week though. We're just going to set the. Is this coming back, Lisa? It is. Okay, good. Yeah, well, the, if, I, if, I, if I recall, and if I might say, I think that version of Hebrew really struggled with the round, if I remember right. <laughs> but not you, Lisa, not you. Okay, let's, you guys want to try it from the top? So it's, we do this line, repeat this line, and then you end here, and we end slow. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, this is, this is wrong. This, should, this is a typo. It's not repeated. This last line's not repeated. I apologize for that. Okay, you ready? Do you know this song? Okay. Um, okay. Hine matov umanayim, hine matov manayim, shevet achim gayahad, hine matov manayim, shevet achim gayahad, hine matov umanayim. Hine matov manayim, shevet ahim gayahad. All right, give yourself a hand. That's not bad. That's not bad. Here's what we want to do. We want to sing it around, but we also got to sing with more verve and vigor because that sounded a bit like a funeral dirge. And we are singing how good and pleasant it is to live slash sit slash read together in unity. Amen? Amen. Okay. So, with all of that being said, I'm about to start this week. Perfect. Um, okay. So, we need to move on to, I said four more theses today in my email. That was a lie. I only meant three. Um, and that's not just because I'm already behind. It's because there really were only supposed to be three for today. Um, so, here's our third thesis. And some of you, I also have to add another caveat here. Some of you have had me before in classes, whether at CTS or here, are going to start hearing certain things repeated. For that, I apologize, but here's the reason. I think there are certain things worth repeating in teaching. And so if it sounds familiar, if it has a ring, I might have heard this before, you did. It was probably from me, and we're going to hear it again, but this time in a little more depth. Okay, third thesis. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is not a book. What are you talking about? 
Here it is. This is a book, right? Why isn't this a book? It's made up of a lot of books, right? So what is it? It's an anthology. It's, a, it's, a, it's the best of. It's a compilation. It is a library of sorts. And I want to argue, and this is actually one of my favorite theses of the group, and I think it makes some of the biggest difference. We need to stop thinking about the Bible as a book. And you start thinking it as a library. And if we did, and I'm going to make this case, it's going to make a world of difference about how we use this library in our faith and life, and in particularly controversial issues. Back in the fourth century, an Italian theologian and church leader named Jerome, or at least he, he lived in northeastern Italy uh, for most of his life, um, called the Bible a bibliotheca. Right? This is the word that we get bibliography from. And what's a bibliography? It's a listing of the books you use if you're writing a paper that occurs at, you know, at the end or the back of the book. But bib bibliotheca in Latin literally just means Latin. Or, uh, uh, it doesn't mean Latin. In Latin, it means library. So if you went to the library um, in ancient Rome, it was called a bibliotheca. And so Jerome, I think, had something profoundly right about his description of scripture as a bibliotheca. And, in, and I think this observation is twofold. First, it's a simple observation about technology. It's an observation about technology. Any guesses about when book, or to use uh, the technical term, codex technology came into existence? When did, I, don't, I don't mean printed, like printing press, but when did people actually just start making books to begin with? Yeah, they, so they sewed them together. And Florida, any guesses about when, when on kind of the world history map would you put that? Second century. Now, me, that either the, that's exactly right. Maybe even a tiny bit more. It's interesting that the invention of codex technology actually was pretty um, coincidental with the beginning of Christianity. And, and, that's, and that's no small thing, because the Gospels and other Christian books actually were enabled to be distributed more widely, in part because of a coincidental technological advancement of that time. So yes, about the time of Jesus, maybe a little, I think second century is actually a better answer. It's a little bit later. Um, and of course, it doesn't really become widely used until well after the invention of the printing press in 1440 to 1450. We don't know exactly when that was. So what this means is this. For the vast majority of history, and the vast majority of Christians, the Bible never was a book. The Bible never was a book for most Christians who have ever lived. That, in its own right, is an interesting and profound observation. Um, what was the Bible then, if it was not a book? It was scrolls, exactly. And what is a scroll, Susan? What would that have looked like? What was it, what was it made of? Mm. That's right. Some would have been. Some would have been made of some type of like papyrus, papyrusy thing. But that's not the main material. Ah, sheepskin or parchment uh, was made of sheepskin or parchment. And of course, scrolls were rolled up things. They weren't flattened out and bound into a volume. They were things that were rolled. In fact, the word in Hebrew for scroll, megalot, is from a verb that literally means to be rolled up. It's a rolled up thing. Um, in Greek, the word for scroll is biblion. In fact, biblion is the word that we get book from and Bible from, but it was only after codex technology developed in the second century that the Greek word biblion became used for books as well as for scrolls. But originally, every place that the New Testament references biblion, they mean scroll and not book or not even a text. Um, what's the problem with scrolls? They're very hard to find your way around because you just flip over to page 76. No, you have to unravel up this end, ravel up, unravel that end, right? It's tough to, to get through, right? There's no page numbers, right? It's a, it's a continuous text. Why else are they hard? That's a big reason. They're fragile, especially if they're uh, papyrus. They're fragile, they decay. This is why we don't have a whole lot of scrolls from ancient history, because they just decayed over time. It's an accident of archaeology. We don't have evidence of a lot of this stuff. 
Why else, though? There's one other reason, I think. Maybe there's more, but there's one other. It's kind of like playing that like, teacher game, like, guess what I'm thinking. Um, any other reasons? There, and why weren't there many of them? They were incredibly laborious things, right? You didn't like go run down the photocopier and just put in the scroll and move it along. It was so hard and took so long to copy, which meant what? They were expensive. They were incredibly expensive. Folks like us, if we lived then, even on um, kind of a, we wouldn't have been able to afford a scroll. Or, or maybe only one, maybe two. But we certainly wouldn't have had all the scrolls of the Bible, um, or even many scrolls in general. We've had very few. Um, they're incredibly laborious. They're incredibly expensive. Um, this is the great Isaiah scroll. The Isaiah scroll is actually a whole scroll that we, not we, but someone else, found uh, in, a, in a cave um, in the Qumran community, which is just northwest of the Dead Sea in Israel-Palestine. And this is a magnificent document that they found. Um, it's the whole book of Isaiah. It's the oldest copy of a Hebrew Bible book that we have. It's probably 1,900 years old, maybe even 2,000 years old. Uh, it's the oldest book, copy, full book we have by 1,000 years. It's a magnificent thing, in part because it's still intact. It's lasted over 2,000 years, or almost 2,000 years. If unrolled, it's 24 feet. Think about how you would have used this. Now remember, this is the scroll that Jesus reads from in the temple, Right? He reads from the Isaiah scroll. So think of what that scene would have looked like. He didn't flip open to, the, to his pew Bible. You know, the, he didn't say, well, turn to page 642 in your pew Bible. He had to find the place, or maybe uh, pre-unrolled and rolled the scroll to him to the right spot in Isaiah and handed him the text and said, read here. Maybe. We don't know. But in either case, it's a huge thing. Um, made from sheep. How many sheep? took to make the great Isaiah scroll. Well, just think about it. Do the math in your head. How's big, how big is a sheep? And then how many would you need to get to 24? A lot. A flock. Well, a, a small flock. A small flock. Um, thinking that you can get about 18 inches of good parchment off a sheep, this took, and we know that this took, 17 leaves. 17 leaves that uh, were sewn together. It doesn't mean 17 sheep. It means 18.5 or 8.5 sheep because you got two halves out of a sheep um, when you're making parchment. So 8.5 of these guys went into this thing. Think about how much that would have cost. <laughs> good, good, they got the shot. Yeah, so uh, these things were incredibly rare from a technological point of, uh, point of view. But Jerome's comment that the Bible is bibliotheca is more than just an observation about technology. It's an observation about theology. For even if you had the money to have all the scrolls, still think about what a diverse collection that would have been. Um, 66 books in the English Bible, a little bit less uh, because of the numbering of the Hebrew. If you had the Hebrew text, they span nearly a millennia, these texts do. They are written by a diverse range of authors with different theological perspectives and interests from different places in response to different crises. They use different forms or different genres. We'll talk about that next. Um, and they employ different rhetorical strategies. That is to say, when you read this one book, it really is like you've jumped around in a real library. Okay? It's an amazing thing, in fact. And so I wanted to show you some examples. So don't just take my word for it. I want to show you some examples of the sort of diversity we find in Scripture. These are just, um, just but a few of ones that we could talk about, but I think they're, um, they're, they, they help uh, illustrate the point. So wisdom literature. Let's talk about wisdom literature. First of all, what is wisdom literature? Where do we find it? What sort of books might we find wisdom in? Proverbs, yes. Ecclesiastes. Job. They're the three big ones. Proverbs. Sword. There's a little bit in Song of Solomon, a little bit. There are some wisdom psalms. It's kind of scattered in other places. Parts of Daniel are considered wisdom literature. But the three biggies are Proverbs, Job and Ecclesiastes. And what's wisdom literature all about? This isn't a whole thing on wisdom literature, but just what are we talking about? Like, what's it like when you read a, a wisdom literature? Let's say Proverbs, because that's the most common one. Like, what does it sound like? Is it, thus says the Lord, in three days the city will be destroyed. Is that wisdom literature? No. 
Is it King Solomon begat someone, someone else, and begat? No. Ah, beautiful. Can you repeat it? Bring up a child the way he should go, and he shall not depart. And so, what is that? It's instructions, right? It's something you would tell a, a mother would tell a daughter, a father would tell a son, a neighbor would tell another. <laughs> It is a dear Abby. Right, and what is it based on? Is it based on divine revelation? Did, did the thunder uh, clap and the skies opened and God said that? Where, how did you learn that? How did you learn that? Experience. Wisdom literature is practical instructions. Um, practical advice, I should say. Based on observations. Based on observations about how the world works. It's experience and probability. It's, you know what, this tends to work this way. When we do this, it tends to go in this direction. Remember those old commercials? Um, I had this growing up, maybe you did too. These commercials for toothpaste. And they would always say things, you know, Crest, nine out of 10 dentists choose Crest. That's wisdom literature. It's what the nine out of 10 people choose. It's look, this stuff works, so use it. That's wisdom literature in an old commercial. Don't you always though wonder about the 10th dentist? What was up with the 10th dentist? Why didn't he also choose Crest? I mean, what was he, what was he brushing his teeth with? <laughs> that is a certain... <laughs> you do, that, that's a different sort of wisdom. Um, but anyway, that's, what, that's how it works, especially in the book of Proverbs. That's the sort of stuff that you get. Now, wisdom is based on experience and probability, but here's the thing. Experience depends on situation, right? Not the same context and life situation produces the same experiences. We all could share our stories, and this would be profoundly true. So what happens? Wisdom changes. Sometimes it's wise to do one thing, and sometimes it's wise to do the other. And even the Bible says this. So there's diversity within Proverbs. So for instance, Proverbs 26.4, do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. That sounds reasonable to me, right? I, got, I, got, I can put that on a bumper sticker. Here's the next verse. Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. Oh, I know I do with that. I need two cars or two bumper stickers, or there might be two cars with two different bumper stickers, and they both be equally biblically right and yet mutually exclusive in a way. See our problem? Even within one book, even within Proverbs, which has a fairly consistent view of how wisdom works, it says different stuff about different stuff. Why? Because if it's based in experience and probability, situation matters. So all that all I'm saying with this, this is nothing revolutionary necessarily, it's just, it's hard to deal with that on our bumper sticker. Because the Bible says both things, and I'm not sure how it settles it in my situation. Well, so maybe this is about the bumper sticker. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. In other words, use your own common That's right. And look at that thing and say, answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own That's right. In other words, saying, look, you know, you've got to think about these things. You either agree with what you see or hate it, or you just and, then, and this is our only option. When, if we're going to read these two verses together, which would make sense because they're in the same chapter, we have some thinking to do. Right? We have to say, well, what situation am I in? How do I take these biblical principles of wisdom and then relate them to my life? We might choose different things. And that's a little messy, right? It's a little harder to say, thus saith the Lord, in this case, because we have to try it on. We have to discern. There has to be some adjudication about what makes most sense. Now, the situation gets even a little more hairy when we talk about diversity between wisdom books. Now, I said there's three big wisdom books, Job, Ecclesiastes, and uh, Proverbs. These books could not be more different. They could not be more different. 
I have reduced Job, uh, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes to three mathematical equations, and I think this is all you need to know. Um, what a science major I was. The wisdom, here's, how, here's, the, here's the book of Proverbs in a mathematical statement. If P, then Q. Remember those things from logic back in grade school, if P, then Q? Proverbs says, yeah, if this stuff happens, then that's going to happen. If you do this, then that's going to happen. It just makes sense. The world just works that way. Job comes along and he says, if P, then not Q. The opposite's going to happen. If you're good, bad things happen. Doesn't make any sense. Ecclesiastes goes one step further. Ecclesiastes says, if P, then who knows? Who cares? If P, then applesauce. That, that's, that's my interpretation of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's a non sequitur. It doesn't make any sense. There's no then Q or even not Q. You can't get the, to the end of the equation for, for the author of Ecclesiastes. So think then, if you were just even trying to deal with these three books, and let's say your final exam was describe biblical wisdom, what would you say? Which one? Which book? Which verse? Do you see the sort of work that we have to do? because the Bible is a library. Now this might seem, make it seem like our work with the Bible is onerous or complicated, it may be, but it's also beautiful and wonderful that we can find these diverse voices all within this text, right? Sometimes our lives aren't, don't work this way. And when my life doesn't work if P then Q, I'm grateful that Job is in our witness. I'm grateful that Ecclesiastes is in our witness. But sometimes when I'm in a Job state of mind, I need to hear someone say, if P, then Q. I need to hear someone else give witness to the world can be that way, and that in hope, one day, maybe, we can get back to if P, then Q. Right? We need both. We need both in our churches. We need both in our songs. We need both in our sermons. Right? We need to hear both because we are both. We are all of the above. Even in different seasons of our life, we need these different things. Amen? This is why it's good to have a library and not just a book. If we had a book, we would be incredibly limited, I think, in our theological outlook. In, in secular wisdom? Oh, I, I just missed, I just... Wisdom is usually, I, I, I want to answer that offline because it's a bigger answer, but my short answer before moving on, it's just that wisdom doesn't typically work in absolutes. And that's, that's kind of what we're seeing fleshed out here, that there isn't just a one-way for wisdom. It's a multi-wayed path, okay? Um, but great question. I'm happy to take that up later. I have another example of diversity in biblical literature, but I think I'm going to move on. It's something about creation. Um, and it will just, just suffice to say that we could do the same little exercise with creation accounts in the Bible, right? We typically think, you know, what's the biblical story of creation, right? And the problem with that statement is we say the biblical story of creation. You guys know this. I don't, I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, it's the, well, more than that, right? So there's Genesis 1. That's one story of creation. Then there's Genesis 2 and 3, a very different story of creation. By the way, one that does not cohere in the sense that it's, it, it gives a very different account. You don't mesh them together. There's no way to fit them together. They're, they're different accounts of creation that stand side by side, and the biblical author doesn't seem to care. But then there's the, there's the stories of creations we often forget. Psalm 74, 12 to 17, another story of creation. Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, another story of creation. So when people get into these debates about science versus creation or evolution versus creation, I want to ask, my first question is, which creation? Which story? What are we talking about? Right? That changes the dynamic of the question right off the bat because we recognize that the biblical witness gives voice to different takes on creation. And it's not just that there are different takes on creation, nor just different takes on wisdom. The point is that it's hard to meld them all together, to mush them all into one, to say, oh, it's all kind of the same thing. No, they're really different. And we actually have to deal with different wisdom books and different creation stories all on their own. And we can't mesh them together. Um, here's why I think all this matters. I think it matters for a lot of things that we've said. But, but here's the, oh, oh, sorry, I'm gonna go back there. Here's why I think it matters, kind of the, the, where the rubber meets the road in terms of culture. 
this pushes on this thing that we uh, hear so often in the culture today when people talk about a biblical definition of blank. And you fill in the blank. A biblical definition of prayer, of worship, of faith, of grace, of church, of marriage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could spend weeks on any one of those issues. But the simple thing I offer us is be cautious about the biblical definition of blank. Because chances are the Bible says a lot of things about that thing that you want to define so narrowly. Now, again, we can debate the particulars of any one of them, um, and that would be for another study in another time, but be careful of it. Be careful because, uh, I talked about this on Sunday a little bit, when we so narrowly define something, or when we only listen to one part of scripture and not others in coming up with the definition, we create, as I talked about on Sunday, a caricature. That is kind of a distortion, an exaggeration, something that only captures a partial truth, but forgets that there's a bigger picture that scripture gives us. And so what I want us to be as, as people of faith is to be readers of a library, to have fuller definitions, to have a fuller sensitivities to the very diverse things that scriptures say, and then to read that diverse voice in community together and discuss how do we make sense of those diverse voices. That, I think, would be a rich conversation. Let me pause before going on to number four for any kind of follow-up questions on that uh, one thesis there, thesis three. Anything on the Bible as a library? Yeah, Jeff. a fantastic question, right? Because it's, if we're beginning to open the door to the Bible saying a diversity of things, maybe we then we say, well, what can we hang on to? Can we say anything about anything if the Bible says everything? And um, I want to put some bounds on that a little bit to say that the Bible doesn't say everything. It says, a, it says different things. It is a library, but it's a discrete library. It's 66 books, not 18,000 books, right? There's an end, there's a beginning and an end to it. There are various voices, but not every voice is said, and that's sometimes good and sometimes bad. I also think, Jeff, that there are, um, while there might not be the, always these nice, neat definitions that we want from scripture because of its diversity, there are trajectories. There are ideas that come up and get repeated and inflected, maybe in slightly different ways, but if you drill down, the principle's the same. And so I feel much better hanging my hat on those principles, those trajectories of thought that get repeated in the prophets, in the wisdom, in the creation accounts, in the gospels, in the letters. When I see things like that get echoed again and again and again and get worked out over centuries, I feel much more confident in saying, thus saith the Lord. That's how I take it. And it doesn't answer everything, but I just want to say there are some bounds to the diversity. Uh, there are some bounds to the, what the, um, kind of the ambiguity in scripture, I think. Anything else on this point? Yeah, Susan. Ah, it's in, it's in Jerusalem. Uh, it's in a special museum that houses a lot of the artifacts from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's in a magnificent exhibit, if you can ever go. There's a whole room. And if I, I think, I think that, if I remember right, it's all unraveled unrolled, is this right, along a circular wall? I think so you can actually walk along the wall and literally see it. It's, it's, a, it's a magnificent thing. It's really, it's, it's, it's remarkable, yeah. All right, let, let me jump on to um, the fourth thesis. Uh, this one is a little bit shorter. Um, the Bible is filled with different genres of literature, each with its own, quote, rules of engagement. So let me ask you a question. What's a genre? 
Okay, it's a type of literature like poetry. I, that's a great start, I like it. The, a style, so a type, a style. What else? A purpose, right? Maybe even a subject, right? Is wisdom might be a genre of literature. Poetry might be a genre of literature. Epic poem might be a genre of, or maybe a subgenre of poetry. Um, yeah, history, yeah, absolutely. Biography, fiction, right? Comic book, I mean, we can go on, for modern examples, we can go on and on and on. Romance novel, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of these are different genres, okay? And it's not just literature. We could talk about genre of cars, genre of shoes, genre of jackets, or, so we, it's really, any way we talk about a category, a category categorized by similarities of style, form, or subject matter. Category categorized by similarities of style, form, or subject matter. Now, why does genre matter so much? Well, knowing a piece of literature's genre immediately tells you something about what it's about, or where it's going, or what its purpose is, or what its goal is, or what its point is. And if you get the genre mixed up, you really can go pretty far afield in terms of understanding what the piece of literature is about in the first place. Let's do a couple examples. Just English, no Bible, just English here. Let's wonder what, let, let's guess the genre and then wonder what would happen if we got it wrong. You ready? Okay. Oh, oh sorry, oh, I, I, I forgot the pigeons. So one way of talking about genres is that they're pigeonholes. There's these little itty bitty holes that a pigeon fits in. Now in fairness, I think genres are more like pigeons than holes because they can drift and flutter and fly and change a little bit, but for lack of a better term, genres are pigeonholes. We're gonna come back to pigeonholes in a second. But first, let's do our, our modern genres. So I wanna give you like a little snippet of a piece of literature and you tell me what I'm reading. A love letter, right? No, not a love letter. What is a Dear John letter? It's, a break, it's the opposite of the love letter. It's the breakup letter. But if you got the Dear John letter and you got the genre wrong, where would you go as a reader? You might miss the point. You might not know you got dumped, right? Okay. Once upon a time, a fairy tale. Is this how history books start? What if you read Once Upon a Time and you thought, oh, this is a history book? You would, you would be some weird history that you got. Uh, and probably a weird a fairy tale, too. Um, you know, there are little things kind of like this, in the, in a, uh, particularly in um, the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Job, for instance, begins very much like Once Upon a Time. It was, there once was a man in the land of Uz named Job. That's like classic once upon a time stuff from the Hebrew Bible. Or the beginning of Ruth, the book of Ruth, first verse of Ruth. In the days when the judges judged. They're, they're conjuring up kind of a, a bygone era. It's not telling history. We'll say more about history in a second. Um, but we've got to get the genre right. Let's do one more. My love is like a red, red rose. Poetry. Who's this from? Anybody? Not Shakespeare, although he plays on some of this too. This is Robert Burns, a Scottish poet from the late 18th century. This is not, at least, or at least one would go a very different place with the rest of the poem if one thought one were reading a botany textbook. <laughs> right? Now, why, do we, why is this so easy for us to do? Right? And it's laughable, right? Why wouldn't we get any of these wrong? We read a lot, we've been to school, we have certain intuitions built by virtue of our experience in life and education in this culture. We don't make these silly mistakes because we know the genres, we know how they work, we know what to expect of them, we know, we can read those two words, dear John, and we know exactly where the letter is headed and we wouldn't make a mistake about what it meant. The problem is, of course, that we often lack similar intuitions when it comes to reading ancient literature, particularly the Bible. So I would, I would like to suggest that we do this all the time when it comes to the Bible. We start thinking that we're reading a very different genre. Maybe not everyone, but I think it happens more often than we would like to admit because we lack these intuitions. 
<coughs> the result of the way I teach students it, excuse me, the way I teach students it, is that we often put foxes in pigeonholes. If genres are pigeons, we put foxes in those holes, and if you put a fox in a pigeonhole and not in a foxhole, you have a problem, at least for the pigeon. The fox is okay. Um, and so let's not put foxes in pigeonholes. And let me give you a couple examples. There's many that we could do, but I just want to name two of the ones that I think are most common, and then I want to come back to my, well, we'll see, see where our time is. Um, first, this is a common mistake. You've heard me say this before. I know you have Paul's letters. The letters of Paul, 14 of them, 7 of them, however you count them, are not systematic theologies. Paul did not go up to his villa and say, huh, I need to really write a treatise on the doctrine of sanctification. And then he sat down in a nice, orderly, categorical way and just wrote, because God was whispering in his ear, all of these things about sanctification. Right? Paul, unlike Calvin or Bart, or Luther, or Bonhoeffer, or Schleiermacher, did not write long theological treatises. We read him as if he did. Typically, that's how we treat Paul. What did Paul say about this? Oh, let me find a verse, and I'll pick up what he said, because that's our systematic theology. What did Paul write? He wrote letters. In fact, he might have written a couple of Dear John letters uh, to the church, I think, Corinthians, maybe. Um, no, he, write, he writes very personal letters. Now, we can do theology with Paul's letters. We can even do systematic theology. I don't, but people can do systematic theology with Paul's letters. But we need to remember that what our raw goods is a personal letter. And letters in the ancient world followed certain conventions, certain literary conventions. They started certain ways. They ended certain ways. They followed certain forms. But if we read it as if it were systematic theology, we miss all of that. Right? In fact, I think we miss a lot, and we can do some dangerous things with theology. We need to remember that Paul is not laying out a rigorous system of belief that the church for 2,000 years can just repeat back uh, to its believers. But he's rather, he's writing to real people with real problems in real controversies, some of them with very difficult answers or no clear answer. And he's trying to take some general principles that he knows about Christ, that he knows secondhand, by the way, about Christ, because he wasn't there with Christ. And by the way, Paul writes before the gospel, so we can't even look to the gospels to find out all the good stories about Jesus and say, well, remember that story? Because they weren't written yet. So Paul is at the vanguard of the New Testament. He's writing for the first time. He's writing letters. He has these principles of what Christ is like and what the Christian community should be like. And he has to somehow package that in, I was going to say a pastorally sensitive way, but Paul's not always pastorally sensitive. Um, but he still has to package it in practical ways. Right? He has to answer real problems. Who is the leader of this church? Not what is your doctrine of sanctification or what is your theory of the incarnation. It's we have a problem. We don't know who leads this church. We have Jews who want to make Christian believers get circumcised. And that is a painful affair. And we, actually have, we really need to answer this question before we do it. Right? These were real issues that Paul had to work out. And I just wonder, what would happen if we read Paul as a letter writer and not a systematic theology writer? Well, I, I actually I want to ask you, how would you read Paul differently? Okay. Okay, there, we would relate differently to it, right? There'd be a different, or we would at least want to say that what he's saying is, is contextual. That maybe if it is a fact, it's it's pertaining to this particular environment. Okay? What else? All right. Some of the problems he wrote about aren't universal, and we shouldn't assume that they are. Maybe some of his solutions aren't as universal as we sometimes assume that they are. Right? And this is where Paul is very confusing, because sometimes he says one thing, and another time, he says something really different. Like, sometimes he says some radically countercultural thing. There's no such thing as slave or free, right? Greek or Jew, man or woman. Like, for that time, and I taught this this summer, those three things would have radically disrupted the three major cultural categories of the day. Paul is a revolutionary. And sometimes he says, women should be silent in churches. That doesn't sound very revolutionary. So which one is it, Paul? Maybe it depends. 
or maybe he was speaking to a particular context that's not ours today. So right, we might become curious about his context. We might say, well, well, why did he need to say this? This wasn't just an abstract truth. What was going on in Corinth? What was going on in Philippi? Why did they need to hear this word? How did this word address their community? It'd be harder to read, wouldn't it? That, by the way, is the punchline of this whole course. It's harder. Reading the Bible's harder than we've been taught. Possible and more rewarding, but harder. It's my way to kind of get you to come back to these things. Um, well, please. Maybe. He is called the Apostle of the Gentiles. And That's right. You know, uh, the significance here and his pivot on the way he was, you know, he was and is a Jew. And uh, he's our only convert mm-hmm. at that point in time. And that is lasting for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's got to be something in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. These are fantastic points, and we're going to circle back to some of this when we talk about authority, because we have to eventually talk about biblical authority in this class, and it's in the last week. And, and, and what Mary taught. That, well, okay, so this is great, and I want to take some of this offline because these issues are actually very complicated. Paul has three different accounts of his uh, meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and each is really different. So again, I would say, which one? What did he hear? In one account, he hears and doesn't see. In another account, he sees and doesn't hear. So what was it? But I, the point I want to affirm, though, in particular, is that I'm not saying that because Paul wrote letters, none of it matters, or none of it has authority, or that the Holy Spirit wasn't in it, or that God wasn't in it, or that it's not important for the life of the church today. I'm not saying any of that. The church has decided that these texts are canonical, and we believe that, and I think that's significant. I do believe the Holy Spirit speaks in and through these letters to the church today in powerful in important ways. I'm just inviting us to kind of shift our genre lens, right? To just to think about Paul as a letter writer and what would it mean to write letters as opposed to what does it mean to write systematic theologies. I want to say that it's different, um, though not at the point of whether or not the Holy Spirit's involved or not. I just think the Holy Spirit works through different genres. And I think the Holy Spirit cares about genres. I, think the Holy, I imagine the Holy Spirit, by the way, as a little bit of like an English teacher in a way. Like, like she really gets that like language matters, genre matters, structure matters, words matter, rhetoric matters. That's my view of the Holy Spirit. But anyway, that's another topic. Um, here's the second one. I think where we put foxes in pigeonholes. We often read Old Testament prophetic books primarily or only as ways of telling the future, and typically the very, very, very distant future. Not like next Tuesday future, but like the end of the world future, or the the coming of Jesus again future, or the rapture future, or all of these different things. And the only thing I just want to say here is that that's not what the prophets were doing. The prophets primarily were not future tellers, or at least not in a way in this kind of Nostradamus sort of distant, distant future thing. The prophets primarily, in may, well, at least in some degree, were social protesters. They were preachers, right? They saw a problem in the here and now, and they spoke words, I think, from God, or at least in some way empowered and informed by their experience of God, against issues in the world then. Not someone else's world, not our world, but their world. They were concerned about what was happening when they lived. The king's the social structures, the money, all of these things, the prophets talked about that. And these times, sometimes they have, they they do predict things. They do predict judgment. They sometimes predict salvation. But I often describe it as they're short-range missiles, not long-range missiles. They meant, this is what's going to happen, O King Ahaz, or I should say Ahab, 
um, if you don't do this. This is going to happen in your lifetime. This is not about Jesus. This is not about the end of the world. This is about what's going to happen next Tuesday if you don't change. So in a sense, yes, predicting the future in a certain way, um, but not this like distant future teller sort of thing. That changes how we read the prophets. Right? Now I'm going to say much more. I'm going to end that on the prophets because I want to say a lot more because we have another thesis about the Bible being a Christian book, but, it not, but, but we don't need to always read it Christologically. And then we're going to say a lot more about the prophets and Jesus and the future and all that sort of thing. But for now, I'll make a, a smaller point um, that primarily prophetic literature is not about future telling. It's about telling the truth to the present not foretelling the truth for the future. Um, Mostly, yes. Now, I have a caveat to that. I have a caveat to that. And let me just explain that situation since we're there. It's Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, 14. And in that context, what's happening in the socio-political world is that Syria, called Damascus back then, but the Syria that we know today, is joining forces with Ephraim, which is northern Israel. They're joining a, co a political coalition. This stuff happens today, right? Like We're talking about this in politics today. Uh, Syria and northern Israel form a coalition. Why? Because the Assyrian Empire is on the move. And they are wiping out nation after nation. And they're moving westward toward the Levant. And the little, Syri uh, the little Syrians and the little northern Israel country say, we got to team up because we're not going to stop the buzzsaw that is Assyria. Okay? What they want is King Ahaz of Judah, the southern part of Israel. They want King Ahaz to join their coalition to help strengthen their cause against Assyria. And God, through Isaiah, comes to King Ahaz and says, uh-uh, I defend you. You don't need a coalition. Don't sell out to these other forces. God will defend you, okay? That's what's happening when this, this, uh, the prophecy comes in. So what happens then in 714, um, God, uh, Isaiah, God gives Isaiah a sign to give to, to, give to Ahaz, and um, it goes like this. He says, behold, the KJV says virgin, but the Hebrew doesn't say that. Behold, a young woman will give birth or bear a son. And we usually stop, and, and he shall be called Emmanuel. And we usually stop there and say, ah, it's Jesus. Now, in part because Matthew 1.23 quotes this in reference to Jesus. And I want to explain more about what I think is going on there. But in the context of Isaiah 7, that's not it. The, the, the vision goes on and says, by the time that person, I forget the exact wording, grows up and can judge good from wrong, the co these two nations, Syria and Ephraim, will be destroyed. What the vision is about is saying, look, don't worry. If, if a young woman gave birth to a child today, by the time that child became like three or four or five or six, these other nations that you're debating about going into coalition with, they're going to be gone. So don't do it. Because if you join with them, you're going to be gone too. But if you stay with me, if you stay with Yahweh, you're going to live. So it is a future prediction in a way, but it's about the immediate future of Israel's, or I should say Judah's political life. And it's about not joining forces with the kings. Now, I want to say that we as a church can still speak meaningfully of Jesus using Isaiah 7.14. But that's a different thing than saying Isaiah 7.14 is about Jesus. Does that make sense? So we can use Isaiah 7.14 to describe Jesus, but Isaiah wasn't talking about Jesus. Right? In the Martin Luther King Museum in Memphis, um, there's, a, there's a biblical verse in this plaque outside, and it's from Genesis, and I forget the exact verse, but it's about Joseph, about dreaming dreams and being killed for it. Okay? Now the people who made the MLK Museum in Memphis, they didn't think Genesis was talking about Martin Luther King. Right? At least I don't think they did. But they could use Genesis to speak meaningfully about the life and experience of Martin Luther King. Right? So they can have him and the verse and say, yeah, this makes sense. I think that's what Matthew's doing. 
He's saying, Matthew knows that Isaiah wasn't talking about Jesus, but he also knows that through the Spirit, he can talk about Isaiah in a way that matters and is helpful for understanding who Jesus is. So it's yes to both. But I think historically, Isaiah, he's talking about the Syro-Ephraimite crisis, not the Messiah some 740, 32 years later. That's my take on it. Does that make sense? Well, we'll talk about it more. Um, okay, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to, uh, there, there's many other things we could talk about. I want to skip ahead just briefly to um, the fifth thesis, just to kind of frame it. I think we might come back to it a little bit more at the beginning of next time. Um, the fifth thesis begins with a question. I sometimes do these exercises in my classes called TAPS exercises, talking aloud, that is, allowed with your voice and allowed, that is, it's permitted, uh, partner sharing. It's the way to kind of get students talking in a lecture. Um, and so I give them just kind of questions to talk about and only two minutes to talk about it. So I want to start you on this. This is going to be our way into the fifth thesis. Is the Bible a history book? Talk, here's what I want you to do. Here's how TAPS works. You turn with a partner and you talk for two minutes and then we come back together. And this will kind of just frame our conversation for next time. So go ahead.